Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Um, live from the gleaming state-of-the-art Streamline Studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker, somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program produced with an artistic vengeance by Magic Matt Allen. Well, you're half right about the artistic vengeance. <laughs> What's the part that I'm half wrong about? There's nothing artistic about this. Oh, oh, that's Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker. Good afternoon. He's put together more about our guest's life than our guest knows himself. There, yeah. hey. Yeah. Charlie Wilhelm. Hi, yeah. how are you? Fine, you haven't, they haven't shot you yet. No, not yet. I have a, I have an FBI agent next to me. Oh, well, good. Is that, <laughs> is that supposed to make you more safe or not? Yes. Supposed to make me safe, folks. We're, we're really good friends. He's the guy that saved my life. Oh, good. And, you know, I went to the mob sit-down in Vegas a couple of years ago, uh-huh. and they had on stage all at the same time these mobsters who had been busted by the feds at one time or another, and then you had the feds yeah. who busted them <laughs> all on stage <laughs> together swapping stories. Your story, which we'll get to here in a minute, it's, it's all in a book called Wised Up, a mobster's gritty true story of murder and revenge on the mean streets. Boy, that asphalt can really be tough. I guess you know Ken Urell, uh, famed for being the second most corrupt cop in the NYPD. He came in right. second. It was a rough competition. But uh, <laughs> uh, some interesting parallels to your guys' stories. Uh, you know, everyone's got that line they won't cross, you know. Right, right. You're absolutely right. Yep. That, uh, yeah. Did you grow up wanting to be in crime, wanting to be a criminal, or is it, did you fall into it like a clean kid into a coal chute? Here's what happened was um, my father was a, was a cop for 10 years. Later on, he, after he quit the police department, uh, he got into con- construction and got my brother and myself in construction. And when I was in construction, I was 16, and it was all the, the, the wise guys from Baltimore at the time we were in the unions, you know, the iron workers, the carpenters, right, or, yeah. you know, everybody. And they took me under their wing and showed me the ropes. And, like, if I went out and did something, you know, like steal something, I'd bring it on a job the next day, and they'd hit me alongside my head and say, are you crazy? You're going to go to jail. And then the next thing you know, how much are you selling that for? Yeah. I was telling them, they said, well, we get half. That way you get paid. So that's what ended up happening. Yeah. So one thing led to another? Yeah. One thing led to another. Um, the people, those, you know, the, a lot of the Italians and stuff like that, I just um, started working my way up the ladder with uh, loan sharking and bookmaking and arson and, you know, and anything I could make money on. Didn't matter. Yeah. Did you get busted doing any of that stuff? I see. I stayed one step ahead of um, the FBI and most of the police departments, ex- ex- except in Baltimore County. Baltimore County um, got me, didn't catch me with anything, got me on a wiretap. Um, wasn't even mentioning cocaine, but they ended up locking me up. It was um, the biggest, biggest bud, uh, uh, drug bust in Baltimore County's history at the time. I think it was 43 pounds of cocaine hydrochloride. Mm. Um, they were going to give me 10 years, give me 18 months. Um, and I had a ball in jail. You had a good time. Oh, absolutely. Did yeah. you? I didn't know if you, so, did you had a ball in jail. You met an eight ball, or you just had a good time. <laughs> no, I had a good time. Oh, yeah, okay. We had bigger card games in jail than we did out on the street. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the arson <laughs> stuff, I figure, was uh, insurance stuff, right? Like, gee, I had a horrible oh, yeah. fire. When's that next Tuesday? Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the arsons and stuff was, um, you know, that's what it was insurance. Yeah. Yep. And uh, you had a wife and family? Still have her, and she's still here. Well, that's, she's a woman of resilience. <laughs> yeah, she's sitting here uh, with me. <laughs> Rolling her eyes and gritting her teeth. So she's got her fist up. She's an Italian, like she's going to punch me in my face. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's something else you and Ken Urell have in common. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, if they'll stand by you instead of sneaking up behind you, you're okay? <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, yeah. I um, I uh, just have to be careful still. Um, you know, the the government wanted me to move back out of the state a couple of years ago, and I told them that I'm not moving. They go to every one of the guys' house that um, you know, that are wise guys or whatever, and tell them they all have to move because I did the right thing. Yeah, well, that's that's true. When you, when you get put up, a, and we'll get to this in a minute. 
when they ask you to do something that crosses the line, you got to self-define yourself, you know? You gotta oh, know. yeah, and then here's enough. It wasn't only that that made me change. It's just that, um, you know, I just didn't, I just, I was tired of that life. Um, when you wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and you, be, you know you became a piece of crap. Well, you know, you got to change. You don't want your children to turn out like you. You know it's a matter of time before you get a 10 or 15-year bid. I was getting older. Every car door you hear in the morning, well, mm-hmm. it's, it's them coming. Yeah. You know, you wake right up. So, um, yeah, I mean, it just wasn't one thing. And then I thought about the guy that was murdered. If he was a part of our crew or something like that, it's a little different. But the guy had nothing to do with nothing. It was just a way for those guys to make their bones. Yeah, to show that they qualified to be real scum. Right, that's exactly it. Your self-image was clashing with your behavior. They say the the secret of of happiness is living a life consistent with what you believe. And it seems like that's where you were hitting the wall. Right, yep. And like I said, and another thing is I didn't want my children to turn out like me. You know, these guys uh, live that life, their children turn out like them. They ended up, you know, going to jail and stuff like that. I didn't want that for my children. Now, what did your wife think of your career path? I mean, she knew what you were doing for a living, right? Oh, no, she didn't. She didn't? Um, what, yeah. she think you were selling insurance or something? I, no, I, I told her I had construction company, owned a bar, owned a restaurant, different things like that. And, you know, it was always one lie after the other. And um, when she first met me, um, people were telling her I was a gangster and stuff like that. And I would say, no, that's not true. And... So, no, uh, that's not anyhow, really uh, true, honey. I'm not a hundred percent gangster. In my imagination, right. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yep. So, um, no. When they took me, in, well, they actually took her to the FBI headquarters here to tell her about my life, and um, she started. I mean, it was pretty bad. She started wailing pretty bad, and you know, I felt like a piece of crap, and you know, I couldn't do nothing about it. No. Yeah. But she stayed she with you. Like I was a monster. She just, did she just look at you and go, geez, you're an ass? I mean, did she, did yeah, she, did yeah she, I heard more than that. I bet you did, but she didn't yeah, leave. I, did. <laughs> I heard more than that. I bet you did. But I've been lucky because through all this, through witness protection and everything, she has um, she has stuck by my side, you know what I mean? So um, I couldn't ask for a better woman. Either she's incredibly compassionate or a, or glutton for punishment. One of the two. He may be a glutton for, for punishment. I think she likes punishing me. Is what it is. Yeah, that could be. It. She, she she can hold this over you forever. Be like if you don't take out the garbage, you know, or something, or don't empty the dishwasher, she can bring it all up. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 So uh, this is starting to culminate. You're starting to feel real bad about yourself. You got kids. Yeah, what, a seven-year-old kid or something? I had a seven-year-old uh, son and a 12-year-old daughter at the time. Oh, boy. And then I had another son that was 18, but, um, you know, it was just, I just had to do it. I just had to do it, yep. And so this is all is building up, and then the, the shall we say, the, uh, the icing on the proverbial uh, immoral cake is that uh, uh, Billy Isaacs comes to you, and he wants, uh, wants you to do something for him. Yeah, he was in. Uh, he was up in um, Elmwood Federal Penitentiary, and um, anyhow, and I, yeah, you had been going up there and seen him regularly. Anyway, first it was Otisville, New York, and then I went to Elmwood, and and um, he said we were going to kill Fat Ricky, but then we were going to wait six months to kill the, this other guy, Ronnie Jones. We were supposed to catch Fat Ricky behind his bar at four thirty in the morning, and um, anyhow, and I, I really thought about, I, I really thought about doing it, and then I thought, well, when's it all going to stop? You know, do I have to kill more people? Do I kill Billy? Does Billy kill me? Um, so it was just getting out of hand. And uh, so when I went back up, I believe in March that year, and, you know, I had second thoughts about it. Um, but he was so adamant we were going to kill him when he got out of prison. No swell. Yeah, we, we'd have got away with it. Yeah, but uh, you wouldn't have you, you would have got away with it legally, perhaps. Right, right. But it would it would haunt you forever. Haunt me. Absolutely. Yep. That's the thing about dead bodies. They never go away. No, they do not. No, they do not. Yep. Yep. And, and then, you know, and plus living that life, um, you know, it's like being in a jungle. If you're not, if you're not that, um, the predator, you know what I mean? You're, somebody's taking you out. And when I reached 40 years old, I was, I was just tired of hurting people. Um, and anyhow, and I just, I just was tired. And, <clears throat> I just, I, and I actually told the FBI 
you know, if um, they ask me if I want a lawyer, do I want money, why I'm here, I said I need somebody to help me change. Well, Bruce Hall was the one that helped me change, the FBI agent who's sitting next to me. Well, anyhow, and I said, look, if I get 20 years, if you guys give me 20 years, just make sure everybody else gets 20 years, but put me on the West Coast in a federal prison and protect my family. Right. So I was fortunate enough. I They never charged me with any crime. I admitted to everything. I was truthful about everything. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. If you're going to be a cooperating witness, you've got to cooperate. Right. <laughs> if you yeah, don't tell everything, you're of, doomed. Uh, right. And, and there's a lot of times, like, um, you know, up, uh, up in the future here, I'm actually going to the to the FBI headquarters, and I'm going to talk to new agents um, about how they handle their, their informants or their witnesses. Um, you know, and how to treat them and stuff like that. So, and I've done that a few times. But um, yeah, so I, I've been I've been fortunate. It's it's a rough situation because uh, did you feel like you're going to be ratting out people that you liked, or was it all people that you were disgusted with? No, uh, these were like they were family. You figure we did everything. I tell you, my, my life was a mixture between Goodfellas, A Bronx Tale, and Donnie Brasco. Mm. That was my life. And that's the God's honest truth. And, you know, you might make $10,000 a day, you blow it by tomorrow, you go make another five the next day. But it wasn't, that's the only thing I miss is the money part of it. Um, and I miss a little bit of the camaraderie. But how, and my friends became my enemy, and my enemies became my friends. Like all the FBI agents and stuff like that, the U.S. Attorney's Office and stuff, they all became my friends. All my friends back then became my enemies. But it wasn't like I picked and choose who I wanted to go to jail. Um, and I really had some serious problems because I had a woman that was on the take with me that worked in the U.S. Um, attorney's office who handled the part where people go into witness protection. And when I told them that story, well, they didn't believe me at first, and so I brought pictures of her into her office with uh, her being at my wedding. Mm -hmm. But I had to get her. Yeah. That's a rough one. So you got the FBI agent sitting right there. Will he take the phone? Hey, you want to talk to him? Yeah, sure. Say hi, there, come on. Hey, good afternoon. Hi there, Mr. Hi. FBI agent. <laughs> uh, FBI retired. Oh, FBI retired. Well, that's Not even better. You can you never retire, you rewire. <laughs> it's like my buddy, the former Secret Service uh, special agent. Uh, you know, they call him the Secret Service because everything's a secret until they retire. He's <laughs> <laughs> the silly service. <laughs> After that, they can talk to you. Uh, so well, tell me about when this guy, when, uh, how you know this guy and, and how he happened to flip. Well, how did you encounter him? Oh, I know him. Oh, well, we uh, spent some time in the same neighborhood, high school together, and I almost uh, stepped out like uh, like Charlie did in terms of uh, working construction. And I remember he came into the cafeteria and and said, "Hey, let's go. I've got uh, my dad's got his uh, uh, you know jobs in the union, laborers, and uh, five dollars and six cents an hour." And that was back in '72, so that was pretty good money when I think the uh, when I think the minimum wage might have been around 160. So. Uh, I thought about it, and the bell rang, and it's like, oh boy, okay, I got to make a decision, and uh, I decided to go to class. And uh, Charlie uh, and his brother uh, went off to work, and we stayed in touch, stayed friends. I helped to bury uh, both his parents, and uh, spent a lot of intimate time together, a lot of good times together, and got to the point where, um, and Charlie was up to what he was up to, and uh, now I you you knew what Charlie was up to, you know he was up to no good. Well, you almost had a sense. I mean, I, I ran in the same circles back then, so we you kind of always knew what, who was doing what. But but uh, then I went off to the Army for a couple of years and uh, and geographically, you know, separated, came back, um, spent some time together, ran around a little bit. Then I went off to college, which physically took me away, but loosely stayed in touch. You know, again, the, you know, mom and dad, his mom and dad, and uh, weddings and, and funerals and such, mm -hmm. and... Um, just over time, he and I drifted apart, um, you know, because of the nature of his business, if you will. And uh, we'd meet at the weddings and the and the funerals, and I'd just, you know, say, "Hey, you know, don't tell me anything I'm not supposed to know." Yeah. And we, we got along, drank beer at the weddings and funerals, and then you know shook hands, said goodbye, and I wouldn't see him till another event. Yeah. And then eventually, um, he called up and said, "Hey, I've got a friend that's a little pregnant." 
And I was <laughs> yeah. like, well, you're either pregnant or you're not. Yeah. <laughs> he said, well, can we talk about it? And so in the third person, <clears throat> he represented his friend and and went on to say, uh, you know, kind of what they had done, but nothing, nothing specific, right. and asked for asked for instruction, asked for help, and, and said, uh, well, what should I tell them? I said, you go back and tell your friend that um, just imagine that they're on a cruise ship and that the ship's going down and there's only one lifeboat and it only holds one person, and you got to tell them to get in the boat because, uh, uh, you know, the FBI can be... You know, like a bunch of a bunch of ants at a picnic. If they <laughs> if they walk past your uh, your blanket and they don't see it, you're good to go. But boy, if one ant looks over and sees the picnic, sees your blanket, he's going back and tell the others, and then Whoop. they're coming for them. Yeah, then you got something happening. <laughs> so uh, how did uh, once he came to you and said, "Yeah, my friend is really me, and I I want to get out of this." Well, let me tell you this part, Pearl. Go ahead. Yeah. Is, uh, I, Bruce actually, uh, I went to Washington, D.C. to Jagger Hoover Building, scared to death to go over there. Oh, yeah. And what happens is he starts writing everything down. And he said to me, Charlie, no matter what, I've written this down. You cannot change your mind and say, I didn't do this or didn't do that. This is on the record as an FBI agent. And whatever happens to you, I can't change. But I will protect you. In other words, make sure I don't get, I don't get killed. That's so, good. Anyhow, that's that's all, a plus anyhow, right that. there, yeah. Yeah, and seeing our story, you know, you hear the story about um, uh, John Connolly and Whitey um, uh, Bulger, right? Mm, right. Where, you know, John, John Connolly was totally bad. Well, at this time, this was what, when I came in, it was the same time. Well, they were interrogating Bruce worse than they were interrogating me because they thought he was John Connolly, basically, and I was like Whitey Bulger. They had Charlie's phone staff. And they uh, had a, a pen register running with phone numbers, and one of the numbers came back to the FBI uh, Hoover building. It was my number. So they thought they had found a connection between Charlie and the FBI. So <clears throat> but prior to that, when Charlie said, hey, what if I tell you that my friend is really me? I said, well, I got to tell you, I mean, it's kind of like that chickens and egg thing where uh, the uh, you know, chickens involved and the pigs committed. So uh, <laughs> if you want to talk, we can talk, but it's going to be all official and all above board, and we're going to walk this thing through, and I'll walk it through with you. That's when Charlie came into the office. But to backstop myself, I had gone to my unit chief and said, hey, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm up to, and I got a guy coming in you know, tomorrow, and we're going to have a conversation. We're going to unfold his story and basically itemize what have you been doing and what do you know and, and vet the material, vet the information and then I'll take it to the appropriate division which was Baltimore hmm. and when they came back uh, Baltimore when they came back and said what have you been up to Bruce thank goodness I had briefed my uh, my supervisor and uh, that you know that kept me out of trouble but there was no uh, no uh, no uh, culpable content on my part but but uh, the information that Charlie was conveying to me was extremely valuable and Baltimore was very appreciative and once I got off the hot seat um, and see Burl, we had what happened was there was a high-ranking police official mm-hmm. that I uh, was giving you know guys information about when raids were coming and stuff like that. So we, we, you know, everybody was concerned that this high official, you know, policeman would end up, you know, getting something happen to me because at the time, right. the police were following the FBI. The FBI is following me. It was a, you know, what I mean, it was a parade. Just <laughs> right, right, and you know, everybody doesn't know who who everybody is. You got undercover detectives, then you got undercover FBI agents, and then you have me, and you know, everybody's following everybody. Yeah. And I'll tell you, Burl, I got another surprise for you. Yeah. I have Joe Jacobson, who was a 27-year investigative journalist who uh, co-wrote my book with me. She's the one who got this all started. She She sure did. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to talk to her? Sure. Okay. Hey, how are you, Burl? Boy, we got the full cast and crew here. Yeah, everybody's here, even Charlie's wife. Yeah, so, uh, she's a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> she is, she's really fabulous woman. So I met Charlie, actually. I was a newspaper reporter for the Baltimore Sun. I was covering uh, a murder trial in a courthouse in Baltimore County. It's a suburb outside Baltimore City. And Charlie was testifying against his best friend, Billy Isaacs, for a long, unsolved murder. 
Uh, there was no physical evidence. It was Charlie's word against Billy's word. And I was writing very ordinary newspaper stories, but I knew something was unusual because Charlie would come into the courthouse and he would be guarded by FBI agents who you usually didn't see in this particular courthouse. Mm -hmm. And uh, a year later, Charlie called me and said, I have this uh, journal, a diary of a thousand words, and I want to write a memoir. Can you help me? Oh, and yeah. That's how it happened. Yeah. You so didn't turn that one down, did you? <laughs> what? No. And I, I first wrote a long series of articles in the Baltimore Sun about him and then left the Sun and we wrote, we co-wrote wrote the memoir. Yeah, so, that's, uh, that's, that's really amazing. I, I, I was telling him earlier, I see all these parallels between him and uh, Ken Urell's <laughs> story. Very similar. Yeah, right. Very similar right. situations. So, kind so of a mirror image here. Yeah. All right. Well, here's Charlie. Hi, Hello. Charlie. Welcome back. <clears throat> Welcome back. Mark, Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, is here. And as I say, he knows no more about your life probably than you do by now. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe you can really work for the government. <laughs> well, he's done that already. Oh, I, I, I work for the for for LAPD. I don't need to. Do oh, that. is that right? Well, <laughs> you, got, um, you got a question or comment? Yes, there, Mark? I do have a question. So, uh, so Isaac's comes uh, and tells you that he wants you to commit these two murders. Right. Were Were you at this point in time still skimming from the bookmaking? Oh yeah, we were all skimming from everything. Okay, so did 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 they did that thought of him finding out how much you were skimming, and the fact that he's willing to have people off, come and come into play? Yes. What happened was, uh, uh, Fat Ricky was uh, was skimming from the the poker machines because I I had a, a barn and liquor store. Billy was partners with us. And Fat Ricky was uh, stealing all the money, you know what I mean? And plus, um, you know, all the stock we had, it would come up messy. And um, anyhow, so Billy was pretty shrewd about it because he had me bring Fat Ricky to uh, Allenwood. He, you know, he got all of my crap about it, saying it was my fault that Ricky was stealing. Well, the next time I went back up there, right, that's when he came up with the idea, you know, you never let nobody know what's going on. In other words, um, you don't warn somebody that you're going to kill them. So that's how it all came about. It was about $20,000 he owed Billy, too, on top of it. And the guy, Ronnie Jones, Ronnie became real successful. And um, he was an ex-homicide um, detective in Baltimore City. And anyhow, he just didn't care for Ronnie because he was sort of jealous of Ronnie. He wanted to take over Ronnie's business. So Ronnie would have been the last person we'd have killed. Yeah. Wow. Except for each other. Right. Yeah. And see, here's the thing. You know, you don't, like, you don't have to worry about people. In other words, my life, you had to worry about your friends killing you. You didn't have to worry about strangers killing you. It's your friends, you know what I mean? Because you put down your guard with your friends. Yeah. You know, because you feel comfortable with it. So they're the ones that are going to end up killing you. Keep your enemies closer. Yeah. That's, well... That's that. It's no. It's, it's totally the other way. Yeah, because your friends are your and enemies potentially. Your friends closer because your friends are the only ones that can hurt you. Yeah, that's that's a rough situation. The whole thing. I mean, we had Andrew DiDonato on, and uh, uh, that's the same story he was telling. He said, you know, "They're not there watching your back, except maybe to put a bullet in it." <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. uh, and see, you know, it's like this: if you have twenty thousand dollars in your pocket today. Well, all those guys are trying to figure out how to get that 20 from you by the end of the day. You know what I mean? And then after they get the 20 from you, well, you can borrow it from them if you need some money. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. what are friends for. <laughs> what are friends for? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation. It's like Kenji Gallo, who uh, got ticked off at the way he was being treated and. uh uh, started wearing a wire for seven years or something. <laughs> he got oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. My stuff happened so fast that um, um, you know, it just happened really quickly. Within six months, I mean, it was one case after another. You know, I I went to testify in um, um Baltimore City liquor trial about the, you know being on the tape, um, and there was a sheriff in there who I knew was a loan shark. He's protecting me. He's supposed to be protecting me in court. 
he's grabbing his gun every time I go to say something. And, you know, <laughs> in the back of the chair, I don't know what to say. You know, I got an FBI, two FBI agents in the room with me, but I don't know what to say to him because I'm on stand. Maybe they got something else in the store for him, which they eventually did. He ended up getting time. But, uh, yeah, and I knew him as a loan shark. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I have to say, if it weren't for having a double life, I'd have no life at all. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, and then one time, um, uh, you know, when Billy came out of prison, I was I had been wearing a wire for the government. I had just taken the wire off. He comes to my house and take a ride. Well, I take a ride with him. We go up to this shopping center. He has to go in the bathroom, and he patted me down and made me strip. Oh, boy. Were you lucky he didn't have that wire on? If I had that wire on, he'd have killed me right in that bathroom, and I had just taken it off. Yeah, he'd have killed me right in the bathroom. Yeah, it's a horrible way to go in a bathroom. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't look good on your resume. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> now, yeah. You must have been fearing for your life anyway. I mean, uh, when... well, here's the thing is that I'm a drilling junkie. And the, the the worst it got for me, because the government would say, Charles, you, you got to leave now. I'd say, no, I'm not leaving yet until I get this all wrapped up or I get this one. And um, I was an adrenaline junkie. Um, I, you know, doing that was basically the same thing I did on the streets. You know, you're constantly in fear and stuff like that. And the adrenaline it was better than any drug. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? And so, you know, I just, I wouldn't stop. Until, you know, until it got to the point where they moved my family out. I was on February the 14th of 1996. And at that time, I didn't know whether I was going to prison or anything because I've never signed any deals. I went to Bruce's office and told Bruce, I said, Bruce, I can't live both sides of this life like this any longer. You know, you need to call Tommy, which was one of my case agents, and said, please tell him that I'm done. I can't do anymore. Um, you know, if I'm going to prison, then, you know, let me go to prison. Start my time. And unfortunately, I, I didn't have to do any time. Well, that's because you cooperated so nicely. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, and I was truthful. Now you're, you're a porch dog and not a junkyard. Yeah, now I'm a porch dog and not a junkyard dog. <laughs> <laughs> did um, is Mark Mark your Boyer relationship with your father? Uh, how did that affect your uh, your your early choices in life? What's that? Your uh, your relationship with your father. How did right. that affect your early choices? Well, it, it did. My father, after he came, uh, you know, quit the police department or whatever happened, um, he idolized these guys. You know what I mean? Like, uh, we had this guy, Crowbar, who, um, you know, he was blowing up in the car, did about four or five murders. They blew him up in the car and blew his leg off. Well, my father idolized them. <laughs> and, um, you know, there was just, when those guys came around, you know, I've seen the life that they lived, just like in Henry Hill, when you walk into a nightclub, where you're the king. And... Anyhow, my, uh, and my father, instead of him saying, you know, this isn't the right life to live, you should be living an honest life, my father wasn't like that. You know what I mean? Because if he heard stuff about me, he would, he would go to his buddies and say, yeah, Charlie did this, or Charlie did that, and it was never, you're going to go to jail. Interesting. Yep. <clears throat> was he abusive? My father, yeah, I mean, I love my father, it is what it is, but when I was younger, my father beat the hell out of my brother and I. We, not that we didn't deserve it sometimes, but we were too little to be beat that bad. Mm -hmm. You know, eight, nine, ten years old. Well, you're going to so, wind up um, with some PTSD either from your parents or from your career. I already have it. <laughs> Take medication for it. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> where where did, it, did it come mostly from your career choices or from your childhood? From my career choices. I still have nightmares every, almost every night there's dreams. Someone's hiding behind a closet, you know, closet door, or, you know, whatever. The dreams are just weird, you know. I'm meeting Billy somewhere, and somehow we end up on a ship. We, we hate one another, but then we end up on a ship together, going to Alaska for whatever, and it's just weird dreams. Yeah. What's well, a nice cruise up to Alaska, though? You should try and see. <laughs> well, I don't want to take a cruise with him, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you may not come back. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> well, is it, are, are we Nelson Eddy all of a sudden? <laughs> Nelson Eddy, yeah. Uh, <laughs> He's a Jeanette McDonald. Yeah. <laughs> so what, whatever happened to him? Nelson Eddy? He died. No, no, no. <laughs> Billy, I... <laughs> oh, he's out. He's out. He did, um, he did eight years on a really brutal murder. 
eight years. When they locked him up, he got a $25,000 signature bond. That was it. Huh. Yep. That was it. So he's out. Yeah. Um, Miss Davis is going to explain this part. Yeah, so uh, Wise Up was first published in 2004, and then Charlie and I uh, wrote a second edition with a new chapter that we published in 2016, which you can find on Amazon. But the new chapter begins when Billy gets out of prison, ah. and Charlie, Charlie sees him at a red light. So that's how the new chapter begins. So they have crossed paths a few times, and luckily uh, nothing's happened. So here's Charlie. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and you know Bruce. Bruce had taught me this. Um, you know, when I years ago is that you know, I would say to Bruce, Bruce, I can't live in Maryland anymore. I'm going to run into guys. And he would say, Charlie, listen to me. How many times have you ran into me being on the streets? And I said, No. Well, unless you run in that circle with those guys, you're never going to see them. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to, for them to do anything to you. So, and he was he was right with that part. You know, it's just like being a drug addict. You have to change people, change people, places, and things. Yeah, so, you're running. You, and they say when you come up in the world, don't go back to the old places. <laughs> uh, and you know what? You're absolutely right. They, um, they had a guy here some years back that was testifying against some gang members. And what's he do? He goes right back to the same neighborhood, goes to the bar, and they kill him. Yeah. You can't, you know, I can't go back to my old haunt. But I can tell you this. If I'm eating somewhere with my wife and children... And I'm eating somewhere, and I have told the government this. And those guys walk in while I'm eating. I'm not leaving. No. But if I walk into a place and they're in there, I will leave. Yeah. Because I'm not leaving because I did the right thing. Yeah. Tell them the address of your uh, my driver's license. My address, my driver's license, and, and all my vehicles comes back to the U.S. Attorney's Office. No. <laughs> yeah. Sort of. That's nice. I wonder, you know, I often wonder if there's a, if they're still after you. If someone's saying, one of these days I'm going to get that guy, or whether they just go to hell. Oh, yeah, they're, they're still after me. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've actually run into a couple guys years ago. Well, one of them, well, in, in the hood, and um, he was working, and I was doing something, and I ran into him, and, and I asked him how he wanted to handle it right there. And he said, I don't have a problem with you. But meantime, I know that when he goes back, he runs his mouth to everybody. Right. But when he's got me, you know, I'm face to face with him. He don't want any parts of it. Yeah, it's it's a weird situation. Like I was mentioned, Kenji Gallo earlier. Uh, he before he came on the show, there were two attempts on his life. Uh, oh yeah, I've been shot at. I was shot at on Harper Road it was here in Baltimore County, and um, anyhow, and it, it was three guys, and um, they blocked off the road and everything. Couldn't find the bullets. I was sweating bullets. Yeah, I bet you um, were. But, yeah. And um, anyhow, but um, yeah, so I've been shot at and stuff. There, there's been so many threats in my life because um, um, when I started first keeping my journal, um, my case agent had called me and said, Charlie, they got two quarter million dollar contracts out on you. So, um, you know, I'm glad I, I left when I did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they actually pulled a gun on my brother once, um, told him they had a message for me. That's in the book where I had I started to sleep in the tub in a motel room, thinking that they were coming through, and I had the agents. I didn't even know at the time I was scared to death, and I had an agent sleeping on the park lot, well, sitting in the park lot, making sure nobody gets to me. Uh, you're a lucky man. Yeah. The agent was not sleeping. No, the agent wasn't sleeping. No. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was asleep. That big help he was. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. the thing about these uh, agents. I often wonder where they get their information. I was in a situation once where a particular fellow, I won't go into all the details, showed me a bullet with my name on it. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I thought it was really clever the way they were able to scratch my name into the bullet. I thought that was right. <laughs> that, that was really interesting. I don't well, know how yeah. they did that. It's well, still <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of like writing your, your name on a piece of rice or something. Uh, yeah. And then about six months later, I got a call from the ATF. Uh, want me to come down to their office. And they want to know if it was true that so-and-so uh, had a gun and showed me a bullet with my name on it. And uh, I said, yeah, that's true. And they said, okay, thank you. Uh, how they do, I don't know. But he wasn't supposed to have a weapon because he was a convicted felon. <laughs> but, right, uh, right. Somehow they knew that story. And I don't know how they knew it. I don't know who, who else was in the room that uh, that told them. But uh, somehow... Who knows? I'll tell you... Um, um... 
they, they just have so many. You know, like I tell everybody, I used to think I had a gang, you know, it was maybe 200 of us. I didn't have a gang. The FBI has a gang. That's yeah. a real gang. You know, they talk about, you know, the, the white supremacist gangs and all that. That ain't a gang. The FBI and the U.S. government have a gang. You're not beating that gang. I can tell you that. And we're in all the trees. And they're, yep, they're in all the trees watching everybody. <laughs> Man, from my true, true story, I got to interject here. Friend of mine would, a uh, young lady, stay up at night, tweak it out, and looking out the window, and she could swear these. She see these guys in the trees. There's guys in the trees. Because, oh, man, you're just, you're just too high. You know, you're tweaking. No, there's guys in the trees watching the building. Well, they weren't watching her, you know, which could be why they go through all the trouble to watch her, you know. No, there, there were some counterfeiters in the uh, apartment two doors down. They were watching them. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, you just, like I said, um, you just never know with those guys. I mean, they're, they're the most honest you know, at the time, the most honest bunch of people that I ever met in my life, um, they were. And, um, you know, and, and I had an FBI agent. He, he had died, and he was sort of like a father figure to me. And anyhow, um, you know, uh, to this day, I think about him all the time. But, um, you know, the life I led, I thought everybody was on the take. Uh, I can tell you this. I, I don't know any of them on the take in the FBI. Sure and um, one time I had um, um, I had gotten all these stolen Oakley sunglasses, cases of them, right? So uh, my case agent, Tommy, we were riding down the road, and Tommy looked like a cop. Put these glasses on. Were they Oakley sunglasses? He wouldn't put them on. He said, I know they're stolen, Charles. I won't put them on. And we don't take nothing from nobody. So, yeah. They're, well, he's they, probably they just are. trying to make a good impression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they are honest. I have to say that. And when I came into Bruce, I actually told Bruce I didn't trust none of the FBI agents, U.S. Marshals, or nobody. Um, because, you know, we had we had contacts everywhere. And Bruce said, Charles, trust somebody. I guarantee my oh, office is not dirty. So I'm glad I listened to him. Yep. How yeah. many uh, uh, law enforcement agents did you put away? How many law enforcement? Yeah. Well, there was just the sheriff got put away. There was a, uh, dang, I'm not naming any names. There was a lieutenant colonel that uh, they were real close to getting, and the guy ended up retiring. They didn't, they didn't get him, though. Yep. Yeah. So, Sometimes um, that's a smart, a smart retirement choice. You're right. Yeah. Yes. I'm telling you, they would have raids. And um, anyhow, when the raids were coming, we'd have the information like a couple hours ahead of time. And um, we'd have everything cleaned up. I had a friend of mine, which ended up being murdered too. But he left a note in um, one of the safes saying, you just missed me. Um, I went right up with all the <laughs> <laughs> Just missed me. <laughs> I can remember that uh, uh, Sean Sullivan, later Cake, New York, back when... Uh, he had a he had a federal case, which I think he finally beat after about five years because they they misidentified him as being part of a crew that he wasn't part of, uh, right. and it took a while to get that all straightened out, like five years. <laughs> but he was right. said, but he said this thing about he says there were gangs and there were crews. He says, but the feds were the biggest gang. Absolutely, they are. They're, they are the biggest. You can't beat that gang. You know what I mean? Um, um, like DMI, BGF, and all that. They don't have a gang. Those guys have a gang. And plus, they have unlimited resources. They have the money. They have, you know, if they have to bring in the Army, they'll bring in the Army. They don't care. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I did a lot of work with the U.S. Postal Inspectors, who don't get enough credit for anything. Yeah. <laughs> Poor fellas. Uh, they got a great lab, too. They got all sorts of great resources. And uh, they were real upset one day because of the news that said uh, FBI agents, uh, assisted by postal workers, raided the... <laughs> Yeah. It sounded well, like we just had a case like that here in Baltimore. One of the um, the last mayor here. It was postal inspectors involved in the FBI, and all you do is hear about the FBI. You hear about too much about the postal inspectors. Yeah, it sounds like you got mail carriers coming in, you know, with their mail bags <laughs> and a machine gun. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they don't get any respect. In fact, the uh, no. the book I did about them, the short story, the Alaska mail bomb conspiracy. They hadn't been heroes of anything since a, a 1953 movie. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> they were looking for a little respect. I hope they finally got it. But uh, those are hard, <laughs> hard-working guys, too. Yes, yes. It's a strange world we live in. 
Uh, when they, when they are, when the, when law enforcement goes bad, either it's a plus or a minus, depending on, <laughs> on the right, situation. Right. And I think I think every big city goes through that now. Is that um, there's so much corruption, and there are so many good police. You know what I mean? And, and the good ones get you know because a few bad ones, the, the the good ones get a bad rap a lot of times. Yeah, it's a difficult, um, very difficult situation because of as you know the uh, you know the the blue line, you know the blue wall. Right. You know, just, yeah. you yeah, absolutely, and um, and like I said, every city's going through it. I think at this time, yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you one of the one of the worst in the United States at one time was the Tacoma, Washington Police Department. In fact, it was it was in retrospect, it sounds amusing because the the chief of police was running the. Uh, uh, the horror houses and the gambling dens. <laughs> I wanted that job. <laughs> and, and, of course, they had a task force that was supposed to be taking down the horror houses and the gambling dens, but they were run by the chief of police. So police. you really had a conflicted department. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're trying to add that application. <laughs> yeah, you put that. I like that job. <laughs> so yeah, that was yeah. really... That was really rough. Also, it was off-limits to all military personnel, the entire town, because it was the gonorrhea oh. capital of America. <laughs> so, well. Huh. But it's, it's changed its image since then. A uh, buddy of now, mine... Now it's syphilis? Yeah, yeah, now it's syphilis. No, a buddy of mine who was a homicide detective there, uh, Detective Yerbury, his dad was a uh, Tacoma police police officer, and uh, Yerbury's son was also three generations... And wow. and going through all that turmoil of the corruption and coming out clean on the other side, you know it's not easy, right? Because illness right. is more yeah. contagious than health. We know that right. for a fact. Yeah. And if you see other yeah. people making money on the take and that sort of thing, it's you know the temptation's there. The temptation, absolutely. Yeah, there were so many. Um, you know, when I was in the group, there were so many um police that I gave money to and you know did different things for and plus they did things for me mm-hmm. yep. and um you know that it's it, they i started up because they don't pay them enough money you know so well you know they weren't getting paid a lot of money on their regular job so he's right. looking for other ways you know Absolutely. it takes a, a little bit of corruption a small do- dollop of corruption can be useful but <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, but it can and you, a girl. One of the things I wanted to say, you know, you know like with is any kids or anything listening to this, you know, you go to prison and stuff like that. Um, people said that, um, you know, are you afraid of jail or anything? No, no I'm never been afraid of prison or nothing. It's just that until the day I hear people breaking in the prison, you never hear about people breaking in prison. You hear about people breaking out of prison. Mm-hmm. So until the day I hear about people breaking in the prison. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go back. That <laughs> That's right. To start breaking in, I want to go back. That means I'm missing something. Yeah. You know but what until mean? then, so. you don't want to... I mean, I have known people who have purposely gone to prison because oh, yeah. they, because yeah. they got out yeah. of prison after being in it for a long time. Institutionalized. And they just go, what the hell? They didn't know, you know, they couldn't get a, a decent gig because they were a formerly convicted felon. The deck was right. stacked against them. No one's going to hire them. Plus, uh, yeah. plus they're out of sync with civilization. You know, they haven't sure. caught up to what's going on. They're going, geez, you know, take me back. What can I do to go back? Right. Yeah. 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 But like I said, until the day um, people are starting to break into prison, I don't want to go back. Um, you know, when that starts happening, I'm going back. But until that day, I'm not going back anymore. No, I, I've heard other people say that, that no, having gone there was more than sufficient. <laughs> but I had, like I said, I had a good time when I was in there. I mean, you know, I mean, all my friends and stuff like that, it wasn't bad at all. Yeah. Yeah, we used to smuggle stuff into the kitchen and, you know, have it sold on the streets and, mm-hmm. you know, different things like that. Yeah. How long were you in? I did six months. That was it. That was yep. it. Not 16 years. Not. Uh, I could have done six months underneath of a bed back then. Yeah. Probably it wouldn't have been so pleasurable if you'd done 20 years. All right. Yeah. But uh, you know what? I'd have did it 20. If they'd have pulled my teeth out, they tried to get me to tell them somebody back then, I'd have never told them nobody. That's yeah. just the life I live. Yeah. No, that's... It's you, it's plus, if, you, if you're going to rat people out, you don't want to rat them out while you're in prison because they'll know you're doing it. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I went anyway. You know what I mean? Um, like I said, I just, I just, 
it's just that I, we just, I mean, it was a change of life for me or something. I don't know. I was just tired. I was just tired of life. Yeah. Yep. It, it wore thin, the amusement factor. <laughs> you, guys, you guys think of the crap in his neck looking over his shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. And you always think, you always think you're being followed <laughs> by, you know, one of the law enforcement agencies. You know what I mean? Whether you are or not. Right, well, you whether know. you are or not. Most of the time I was because uh, one of the detectives said, Charlie, you're the hardest person I've ever known to, to try to keep track of. Yep. I was no. going down one-way streets and do different things and so that they couldn't catch me. Thank you. Yes, being thank paranoid you. Yeah. doesn't necessarily mean you're not being followed. That's right. Yeah. 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 But, uh, yeah. Well, they, I mean, if you guys, you guys, I mean, there's always exceptions to the general rule of how wonderful the, uh, the feds are, as I'm sure the FBI agent there knows about Geronimo Pratt. Uh, poor Geronimo Pratt, what, 27 years, a lot of it in solitary when he finally got out? I can't oh, remember, yeah. Can't remember yeah. how much the FBI paid him, $16 million or something. Go, yeah, we framed you. <laughs> you know, right. Oops. Yeah, 27 years, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, that's terrible. That's terrible. Yeah. Uh, it was yeah, just one of those terrible. things. The uh, orders came down from J. Edgar with a list of names. And unfortunately, his name was on it, whether it should have been or not. And uh, bam, <laughs> convicted of a murder. He was even out of town. He wasn't even in town. <laughs> well, well. Mm. Yeah. The, the thing about going to prison for 27 years is no matter how much money they give you, you know, right. there was a judge it's involved. Not, yeah, and that's just, why on all the... All the appeals never went anywhere because they kept going back to the same judge who was crooked in the first place. It wasn't until right. it accidentally went to a different judge that he went, hey, wait a second, this case is screwy. <laughs> and he got out. Yeah, how do you get the 27 years back? You don't, yeah, you, you don't. Know, you can't, can't, get it back. can't get it back. You know? no. I mean, I have it bad enough just looking back at my life. I'm 72 despite my boyish good looks. And uh, I look back yeah. at the things I've screwed up on, I go, I can't fix that now, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> too, too late yeah. now. <laughs> but uh, well, So what do you do now besides sit on the front porch and uh, and have nightmares? <laughs> uh, I actually, um, I, I work for a, um, a bank, and um, I handle a lot of their properties. So, um, you know, I've been fortunate that way. I came When I first came back to Baltimore, I made $8 an hour. My wife made minimum wage, and I figured I had to start somewhere. So we started, and, um, you know, I worked seven days a week for, I don't know, three, four years, something like that. And, uh, anyhow, we just got on our feet, and we kept struggling, and, and finally we, we made it. And all that money you were making when you were crooked, you didn't save any of it, did you? No. Here's what I, like I said, you know, you make all this money, um, but as fast as you make it, that's how fast you spend it. I said, listen, like one time, guy told me, oh, his horse is going to run, right? So anyhow, every time I went there, I, I, I you know, I spent like six, $7,000 on this horse. So the horse must have ran 10 times, right? Every time I bet six, seven, eight, nine thousand dollars, I could have bought the horse for seventy five hundred. Right, yeah, turned him into <laughs> dog food and made a profit. <laughs> well, right, yeah, I could have bought the whole horse for seventy five hundred. But meantime, I probably lost eighty thousand. Yeah. yeah, good thinking That's on your part. <laughs> you needed a financial planner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, and most of those guys that live my life, they end up. Um, they don't have a family at the end. They end up penniless anyway. Yep. They end up in these little studio apartments because nobody's going to give them a shot to make money. They're too old. They're afraid that they give them a shot to make money. They get caught. Well, they get a death sentence because, you know, if they get five years, they might die within that five years. Yeah. So, you know, that, that, like I said, you know, most of them, are, most of them end up like that. Because yeah, I always ask that question of all the money these, these crooks are making, how come they never have any? Well, you're right, because like with me, I gave it away, I blew it away, because you figure you're going to jail, you might as well have a good time anyway. So that's that's what happened to me. Yep. Of course, my family never wanted for nothing. I kept uh, a bowl in the kitchen with 25000 in there at all times. If my wife decided to spend 5000 she wanted to spend 5000 And then I'd just come back in the next day or whenever I came in and pull it back up for her. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You're just now telling me about the bowl. <laughs> <laughs> now you're in trouble now. <laughs> she, she's going, why don't you do that again, honey? <laughs> well, we got a lot that we say. You've got an FBI in here. <laughs> now, wait, now, your kids are now old enough. They know about your life, don't they? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, a funny story is my son, uh, my youngest son, when he was in high school, um, he had to do uh, uh, some sort of thing with the book. So he ends up uh, doing a thing about my book. Well, the teacher gave him a D. Oh, right? no. Oh, yeah. Well, then when he said to her, that's my father, this is me in the book. <laughs> well, he sort of got an A plus, he got an A minus. <laughs> <laughs> but you thought he thought he was making it up? <laughs> yeah, they thought he was making it up, Yep. Sure is. <laughs> no, I, no, know, no. My dad really was a crook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I am so grateful my children have turned out um, nothing like me. They work hard, um, and, you know, they live the, the, the honest life. Um, and, you know, like I told everybody, you know, these kids, when I talk to these kids at school, if you go do a robbery and say you get $10,000 from that robbery, well, you know what that averages out after you get your 10 years? You get a thousand. It averages out to a thousand dollars a year is what you made for robbing a place, and yeah. plus you missed the ten years of your life. Plus, uh, yeah. what was his name? The bank robber Willie Loman, right? Remember him? Probably before your time. Yeah, yeah. In fact, he wound up doing commercials for American Express. <laughs> Whatever that guy's name was, he was a famous bank robber, and he said that 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 if you took how much money he stole and how much time he put in prison. He made less than minimum wage. Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Yep. Yeah. That is absolutely true. So uh, they say crime doesn't pay, but the hours are good. <laughs> the hours are good. Yeah, and see, back then, we, um, you know, I had a side job called Spot and Steal. I would spot during the day and steal at night. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's like my buddy, my buddy punched the di ex, uh, ex diamond thief, retired. He says a company called Roman Steel. <laughs> it is <did> Roman Steel. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You were a porch pirate before they became popular. That's right. I was a porch pirate before they became popular. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the uh, the book is a uh, which is really a fascinating read for anybody who wants to know about all this stuff. The uh, book is called Wised Up by Charlie yeah. Wilhelm with uh, the beautiful and talented uh, Joan Jacobson who put the words together. It's kind of fun doing those books, isn't it, Joan? Yes, it is. My yeah. first one. I did one after that. Totally different. So what was the one you did after that that was totally different? Totally different. Uh, it's called Eyes of Justice. Yeah. By uh, James Cabasis. Uh, and Jim Cabasis actually had a, a long career in law enforcement while he was going blind. He hmm. was an honest Baltimore police officer in the 1970s. He worked as a deep covert in the red light district looking for the mob. And then he became, for almost 40 years, the chief investigator of political corruption in Maryland, which is a lot. That probably kept him real busy. He kept him very busy, and he instigated and oversaw the investigation, the criminal investigation of a Baltimore mayor named Sheila Dixon while he was completely blind. Hmm. And uh, so we published that book. Uh, a little more than a year ago, Eyes of Justice. So, uh, and and Jim and Charlie know each other, and they're good friends. And we've even had uh, one or two speaking engagements together. Charlie talks about what it's like to be a criminal, and Jim talks about what it's like to catch criminals. Yeah, that's that, 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 so at the beginning of the show. That's like that uh, mob sit down in Vegas, where you had the federal agents and the, uh, right, the mo exactly. mobsters right. swapping stories. Hey, remember back right. when? <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah. That was the weirdest thing, man. I mean, just, uh, time changes people. I mean, you know, the, these guys weren't wanted for anything anymore. They'd either done their time or they'd been in witness protection. And here are the, uh, the retired federal agents, you know, just like they're talking about the old college days or something. Right. Well, that's right. They do that. And also, uh, there was a uh, an honest vice detective in the Baltimore City Police Department who goes by the name of Spanky. Who, he was the guy who used to try to tail Charlie, which was difficult. And when Charlie and I were writing Wised Up, uh, I talked to Jim Cabasis. This was long before Jim and I started writing together. And Jim said to Charlie, would you like to meet Spanky? I'll arrange the meeting. So <laughs> he doesn't have to follow you anymore. Hey, listen, we're out of time. We've got to wrap Wised Up up. Hey, can I say one thing, Burl? Sure. Uh, uh, thank my grandson, Kenny Johnson. 
who's at 29 Palms, California, for being in the Marine Corps and for all his service, buddy. Thank you so much. Thank yes. you for much, too. Yeah, we Hoorah. thank you. Hoorah, man. Hoorah. Thanks again, Charlie Wilhelm and Joan and uh, the FBI guy, too. Wised up. Wised up. Buy it, read it, believe it. <laughs> hey, Burl. Yeah. What's next? Magic Matt Allen of the Demons of Decadence live with the Light of Lounge on OutlawRadioLive.com. Step of the way we walk the line. Your days are numbered, so are mine. Time is piling up, we struggle and we scrape. All boxed in, nowhere to escape. City's just a jungle, more games to play. Trapped in the heart of it Trying to get away I was raised in the country Been working in the town Been in trouble since I Set my suitcase down Ain't got nothing for you Had nothing before Don't even have anything For myself anymore Sky's full of fire Pain is pouring down There's nothing you can sell me I'll see you around My powers of expression A thought so sublime That never do you justice With reason or rhyme Only one thing I did wrong Stayed in Mississippi A day too long For the move, sail with me 
Everybody's moving If they ain't already there Everybody's about to move Somewhere Stick with me baby Anyhow Things should start to get interesting Right about now My clothes are wet Tight on my skin Not as tight as the corner that I've painted myself in I know that fortune is waiting to be kind So give me your hand and say you'll be mine The emptiness is endless Cold as the clay Can always come back But you can't come back all the way Only one thing I did wrong Stayed in Mississippi A day too long 